Welcome to the Adoptee Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Guida Richards, an author, adoptee, and mom. Each week, we will delve into the nuances of adoption, as well as tips for how to bring up difficult discussions in your adoptive family. And most importantly, we will not shy away from tough topics. So thanks for joining me today, and let's jump into your weekly dose of Adoptee Thoughts. What is your name? My name is Jessica Lucieri. And can you share a little bit about your adoption story with me? Absolutely. Um, I was adopted from Columbia when I was about three months old uh, to a family here on Long Island in New York. And I grew up here for my whole life. I grew up in a very, if anyone knows anything about Levittown, people are learning about Levittown these days, but um, it's an exclusively white neighborhood. And mm. being a person of color, um, you know, it was, it was definitely something that I experienced more attention on as I got older. But as a kid, you know, growing up in this town, I, I, I had my friends and I had uh, my peers and didn't necessarily feel like I was any different than anyone else. And luckily, I wasn't really treated like I was anyone, you know, who didn't fit in or my skin color was an issue. And mm-hmm. I grew up here until I was in college. And then I went to college and, you know, had my different cultural experiences where I then joined an organization, the Student Organization of Latinos, uh, at the college mm-hmm. that I was attending. And it was the first time that I had ever been a part of a group that was, you know, people that looked like me and yeah. that shared that same culture. But when I went into the room, I felt, I felt, you know, I don't want to use the word inadequate, but definitely as though I didn't necessarily belong. And it was the first time I had ever felt like that. It was also the first time I had ever been in a room with so many people who looked like me, skin color, you know, hair color. And it was a big adjustment for me to um, exist in that space. But to make a very long story short with that experience, that was the first experience that I had with my awareness of my culture and it inspired Mm -hmm. me to learn a lot more about my culture and I embraced that uncomfortability that I had in being in that room and made it a very positive experience. I had to kind of be an advocate for adoption at a very young age and Mm -hmm. that catapulted me into the work that I've been doing you know for the rest of my adult life more or less and I had always support from my parents and I always felt very comfortable talking to them and and sharing my, my thoughts and my questions that I would have along the way of my life. And, um, as I got older, they had always said that they would be supportive if I had ever had interest in, in searching for my biological family. And even if I did whatever I wanted to do, they would support me in my decisions and having that peace of mind and having that, um, that sense of security at home with my parents as an only child was huge because it really allowed mm-hmm. for me to be who I was going to be and feel comfortable in my own skin and feel comfortable making the decisions that I felt were right with me for me. Um, yeah. And uh, I eventually ended up uh, doing some, you know, some work with other Colombian adoptees kind of by accident. We had found mm-hmm. each other. We were meeting in groups uh, here in in New York. It was about three or four of us. 
we brought this group online. It started becoming a bigger thing. And we had people who were connected to Colombian adoption um, all around the world join our group. And through that, I found a private investigator. And several years later, contacted him after a few friends of mine in the Colombian adoptee world had gone through him yeah. and uh, was successful with a, with a search. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. So I went down about a year later after finding them and after finding my birth mother, I should say, and had the opportunity to reunite with them. And it was really an incredible experience. And somehow that's almost 16 years ago already. So I went from being an only child growing up here in New York to being one of five kids. Wow. Yeah. I actually just found my birth mother back in March. Wow! So the, that's it's kind of cool hearing other adoptees oh, who, who have found that. I haven't had a chance to go down there yet, but uh, we're thinking about it once the pandemic is is over. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt when you received that call that they found her? It was actually. It wasn't a call. It was an email. And it, this was back in the early 2000s. Um, mm -hmm. And I was expecting to hear back from this gentleman maybe a month, two months down the line. I heard back from him in about a week. Wow. With not just, I found your birth mother, but here's your birth mother. And here's the literal pages of just your, your story. Your, your brother, you have an older brother, you have four younger siblings. Um, she's remarried. There's a whole other family, you know, that that's, mm -hmm. and that also that did not know about you. Mm -hmm. So there's a reality of that there, that it, there's a layer that you, you're not really expecting yourself to kind of um, encounter. You're not thinking about that. You know, you're, you're almost mm -hmm. just thinking about how big the moment is and, and just the simple act of reuniting and finding, searching. And then you come to the, the reality that, oh, wait, I might not, nobody may know about me. Mm -hmm. And what does that bring to you as the adoptee? What does that bring to your family, your birth family? How yeah. does that bond them or how does that divide them? And luckily, in my case, it bonded them. Because when I eventually went down there a year later, it was you, it was as though everyone in that room was biologically connected to me when only half of the people were. My my mother, my birth mother's husband's family was there. There might have been more of them there than there were of my own my, my own mother's family. And wow. to have that acceptance and that embrace, you know, there was no like, oh, this is my husband's sister. This was Tutia. This is your your cut, you know, Tufimo. This is there was no divide. There was no otherness. Yeah. That that sounds amazing. I'm so glad that you had a great experience with I that. Too. <laughs> I I know that a lot of there's a lot more to different stories and everything isn't as great as that was. Right. So it's it's so I don't know, peaceful to to hear an adoptee find and assimilate to their birth family with such warm, open arms. How did your adoptive family react when you told them that you found your birth family? My parents were really wonderful in, it was not, it, it's never the right time, right? To do these yeah. kinds of searches. There's no such thing as the right time in many different things that we experience in life. This is something that 
adoptees spend a lot of their lives thinking about or pushing to the corner or trying not to think about. It's just a reality in, yeah. in our in our narratives. And I was in college and I was busy and I was an art student and I was not, I had a lot on my plate. I had this cultural awakening that I was in the middle of, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, but when this opportunity, you know, arose, I brought it to my parents and I said, listen, you know, what do you think about this? Do you think I should try this, this, you know, going down this road of this private investigator? And they were like, if this is what you want to do, then let's do it. Mm -hmm. And it was at a very tricky time in my life. My, my father had just had a brain hemorrhage and my mother had just been diagnosed with colon cancer. And so it was really not the right time. Yeah. But yeah. They said, let's do this. You know, if this is what you want to do, let's see what it looks like. And when I opened up my email that day and saw a week later, just of this, this like avalanche of information, I don't know how, I don't think I was hesitant to bring my parents into that conversation. I think I like called them before I even opened the email and like had them come because I was still living at home, come upstairs and just share in this excitement with me and yeah. try to decipher what this all completely in Spanish email was saying. <laughs> and I couldn't, and, and they were excited to see me excited. Um, and they were very supportive. And they had said, you know, despite what they had been going through personally and, and health-wise, we'll go down there with you if you want us to. We'll, That's we'll, so we'll, nice. Yeah. My parents were very incredible people. They've unfortunately both passed, but they were as wonderful as they possibly could be, as supportive as parents could be, and um, as mindful of my experience being my experience and them being able to share in that as they could be. It was, it's, you know, very lucky. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that, but I'm glad that they were very amazing. They sounds like they were the ideal adoptive parents. They do sound uh, like that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in ways they were, in ways, you know. Yeah, every no one's perfect, of right. course. Exactly. Were you able to talk to them about race growing up? Did they bring up those types of conversations with you? No. We, you know, looking back and seeing how conversations are happening these days and the importance of having these kinds of conversations about race and racism, those two topics and being two separate topics. Um, I don't think we did have those conversations. We lived in a very white neighborhood. And, mm. you know, when I, when I speak on panels to adoptive parents or pre-adoptive parents, birth parents or, or even adoptees, you know, a lot of my childhood was just spent having fun with my friends and, and having, you know, having a very innocent mm -hmm. experience of childhood. And I'm thankful that I didn't really experience any kind of racism or otherness from my peers or from my teachers. And maybe people did, you know, it's, it's in these times now that I'm looking back and I'm wondering, did people look at me and see the color of my skin before they saw me? Because I didn't live my life like that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what conversations about race would have been like, especially in this particular neighborhood, especially back in the 80s when adoption wasn't really spoken about. There was no question that I was adopted because I didn't look anything yeah. like my parents. My parents are Italian and Irish. Um, mm -hmm. 
but we did not have conversations like that. And I don't know if it's just because um, my parents didn't know how to talk about it. There weren't enough resources of how to talk to your transracial child about, you know, race and racism in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. But I also don't know what that kind of conversation would have looked like with them and how comfortable that would have been um, if I wasn't kind of out there feeling like it was an important topic. If it was today, then it would be a different conversation. I do think it's important for parents to absolutely talk about this with their kids and and have an open dialogue. Um, But because I I can't, I can't imagine what it would have been like for me. Did you feel comfortable when you started to integrate into a a bigger Latino population in college when you went to those meetings or did you ever experience any otherness because you were adopted? Because I had a similar club that I tried to to join, but it was a little too much for me. Um, I'm actually a late discovery adoptee. So um, I found out maybe a year before I started joining clubs, I was, thinking, I was 19, 20. And it was just super awkward for me when people would come up to me and talk to me in Spanish. And then mm-hmm. I would always kind of have to face with, do I tell them I'm adopted or do I just say, oh yeah, I, I, I grew up, I grew up here, but was born in Bogota or whatever. Yeah. You know, did you have anything like that? Oh, of course I did. Of course. Because the second you, well, I'm going to say, I say you, I mean me. Yeah. The second I, I opened my mouth, they were like, hmm, you sound like a white girl. You're not. You, do you speak Spanish? No, I don't speak Spanish. I spoke bad high school Spanish. Mm-hmm. And there was that the first time in my life when I had to stand up for myself and stand up for my position of being a person of color mm-hmm. with no cultural references. Like I had no experience of surviving in the skin that I had, having the responsibilities that other people who look like me have. Mm-hmm. And what I used to say when I would speak to parents was that I felt like I was false advertising. You know, you would look at me and you would assume something. People would come up to me, they would speak Spanish to me and I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, return the conversation. Yeah. And I found in that discomfort in college that I had to take that and use that as a moment to educate. And I don't think it's adoptees, you know, um, I don't think it's their responsibility to be continuously educating everyone out there about adoptees because we're allowed to have our own stories and we don't always have to be advocating mm-hmm. um, for why we are adopted or what our story may be. Yeah. Um, but I looked at that in the moment of, of people kind of, you know, calling me a coconut and giving me a hard time. You're not really Colombian. You don't, you, what do you know about Colombia? Mm-hmm. I stuck with that group. Through, through my college years and became a part of their executive board and made sure that along the way, anyone who had something to say was un- understood why everything they thought they would, they knew about me, you know, they didn't know about me, you know, and, and it was a bigger conversation about just acceptance of me as one person, but acceptance of the understanding of adoption as, you know, they move throughout life. You're going to meet people like me. Yeah. I'd rather you have an understanding now when you're in your formative years in college than, you know, thinking that it's okay to call people out mm-hmm. 
for not having the cultural reference of their, you know, the skin that they're in. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And I'm glad you were able to stick through it. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work with adoptees? Sure. Um, so when I, you know, that group that I had mentioned before of the Colombian adoptees who had formed, you know, this kind of online, this accidental online group a long time ago in Yahoo groups. Mm-hmm. Um, it was through that that I was contacted by a social worker and was asked to come and speak on a panel. And I was still very, you know, new to my own awakening of my adoption identity. I don't really like to say that, but who I was in as adopted, I should say. Yeah. And I went in and um, spoke to, you know, a pre-adoptive parents, some, some people who were in placement and some people who had adopted already and shared my story. And I felt so like I was in ownership of myself. Once I heard myself tell my story, it was the first time I had actually heard myself actually speak my story out loud Mm -hmm. as a story for other people to take in as like it would be useful. Yeah. Other than standing up for myself in college. And this was while I was in college. Um, And through that connection and through that relationship um, with speaking on panels with this agency, with this organization, uh, there was a mentorship program that had been developed by uh, a good friend of mine. She became a very good friend and, and mentored me. Um, she t- she developed a mentorship program for younger adoptees to connect with older adoptees, both internationally and domestically adopted, mm-hmm. because there was interest from younger kids who wanted to get to know other adoptees, who wanted yeah. to get to know older adoptees. So we formed that mentorship program because of them, they wanted it. It wasn't something that we're like, let's do this mm-hmm. and see what it looks like. They were like, let's do this because we want this. Yeah. And there's no better reason to do anything than when somebody's asking for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was about 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I stuck around with this program for the entirety of it. And I'm still the only mentor who's been there since the beginning. And I now oversee the program. And along the way, it, it has been the most constant thing I've done in my adult life. And along the way with, with doing mentoring, I was also continually speaking on panels, speaking at conferences and getting, just expanding my own network. Um, and so now, like I said, I, I oversee this program and I'm also the president of a Brooklyn-based mentorship program that serves adoptive families and kids in a mentoring, in a group mentoring fashion also. So it's the most rewarding work that I could do. It's the most personal work that I can do. It's difficult to get through work sometimes just because there's no way to detach yourself from doing work and, and your, your own personal story and narrative because my whole life and my, my identity as an adoptee is continually changing the more and more I work with other adoptees and especially with younger adoptees, mm-hmm. understanding what they go through today and, and discussing very difficult topics that I wish that I had an outlet for when I was their age. Did you know any other adoptees when you were growing up? I did. My parents adopted me through an organization called LAPA, by American Parents Association. And through that, when they had gone down to Columbia in the early 80s, they had gone down there with another group of 
families who were adopting and they were all local to where we lived. So I had, I had one particular adoptee that I was very close with. I mean, we're like moments, literally minutes apart. We were born minutes apart. We were in the same orphanage together. And so I always had somebody, but I can't say that growing up, I was ever very interested in my adoption story. I was just, you know, I was glad to have her and glad to have the other kids that I was adopted with, but we did not necessarily grow together in um, our adoption, you know, our, our our lives as adoptees as we grew up. I don't even speak to like 90% of them anymore. Yeah. Um, but I, I can say that it was in those formative years of like between 11 to 18 when you start having more questions about your identity and start reflecting in more. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly the age group of the kids in my program. Um, and so I think of the benefits that I would have, you know, the, how beneficial it would have been for me to be able to have some of these deep conversations um, at their age. And I'm glad to be able to have them now at my age with them, you know, in those, in those years. What's the most beneficial part about it? Do you, that you think the program is like, if you were a kid, which part would be most essential for you to, to process things? I think the most, the most powerful moment for our kids and for our mentors is the moment when we're all in a room together when we could be in a room together. <laughs> um, and you realize that everyone in that room is adopted. You have that instant camaraderie. You have families that are coming in and dropping their kids off. And there's no one in that room looking at you as a child thinking, oh, I wonder, you know, they don't look like their mom or they don't look like their dad. There's none of that. And in these yeah. years, especially dealing with kids that are growing up in the tri-state area, New York, and New Jersey and Connecticut, you know, there's such, you know, there's, there's a lot of diversity, mm-hmm. but these kids are, are becoming much more aware of their physical appearances and people's assumptions of who they are. And they have to yeah. start kind of building up their own narrative as to how do I explain this? Do I explain this? Why I don't look like my parents. When you walk mm-hmm. into a room when no one is wondering that everyone has a similar narrative, more or less, nobody essentially looks like their parents. I mean, we have some people who look like their parents just by happenstance, but um, Mm -hmm. that in itself, I think sets the tone for us to be, have a really successful program with our kids because they understand there's, there's an instant acceptance. Yeah. Hearing each other's stories and connecting and, and leaving a space, a very open space with, you know, nothing but um, respect for each other's stories and understanding that we all have different stories. We all have, you know, very different backgrounds, maybe different beliefs on our adoption and, and what that means to us. When kids get to hear other people talk about their experiences as adoptees, they start hearing things that they're feeling or that they've felt mirrored back to them, that they may have never mm-hmm. spoken out loud. Because for some people that join, you know, that join mentorship programs, when it's like an adoption-based mentorship program, they've they've maybe never ever met another adoptee. They don't have somebody mm-hmm. in their close peer circle. They don't feel as comfortable talking to their parents about these things. And the second that they're in this room and, and they're able to kind of let their guard down 
and at yeah. least just listen, not always share. There's no expectation for anyone to share anything. We just want you to be open-minded and listen to each other. Um, there's a lot of power in that moment. You know, there's a lot of power in that experience. Yeah, just listening to that, I'm like, how do I get involved with something <laughs> like that? Um, I met my first um, adoptee, fellow adoptee in person last year. She just happened to be part of my mom group that I was part of. And then by word of mouth, we heard about each other. And then we met for coffee. And that was my first experience sitting down with someone who who was a transracial adoptee like me who had a similar type of experience with her adoptive parents and then just being able to talk to somebody who understood. I, mm-hmm. I came home talking to my husband a mile a minute. I was like, this is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea what it's like. And mm-hmm. um, it's just like a really nice experience because even hanging out with other Latinos and other Colombians, like my husband's half Colombian. So like, mm-hmm. like I have that type of aspect, but then I don't know. I feel a little bit jealous sometimes because he got to grow up with a Colombian mom. Like he understands like a lot of the food and most of the language and all that stuff. But with other adoptees, they really get it. Like you said. Oh yeah. Is that group still taking on people even with the pandemic? Cause like, I'm sure yeah. people are going to listen to this and be like, how can I get my kids involved in that? Oh no, absolutely. And, and you know, the, if there's anything that's, that we can say that's good that, that has come out of this is, you know, you and I are having this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. People are being able to connect with connecting. I have been able to connect with uh, families all around the world um, in virtual platforms. Um, and so we're able to essentially open up our programming to people outside of this immediate area. Mm-hmm. Normally, these events are held in person for the last few months of this, you know, school year. Of course, we had to use a digital platform. And for the beginning of next year, we will be using a digital platform. But this allows for us to uh, widen and expand our horizons as far as how many people we can reach because it's important work. I think I think mentorship, my own thoughts are mentorship is more important now than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's important to have a version of yourself reflected back at you so that you can, you know, you have some sort of a guide to, to help you grow. Just having, you know, people there that can echo your feelings, that can say, I, I've been there, I felt that, I understand what you're going through, I understand how difficult or how hard this or, you know, whatever it may be is, um, everybody needs yeah. Programs like this are important because we are able to reach kids and reach uh you know the younger versions of ourselves essentially but we as older you know adult adoptees mm-hmm. get just as much out of this program as much as of you know out of these programs because we didn't always have you know not all of us had something like this as as we were younger yeah. You know, and, and the opportunity to be a mentor, mm-hmm. quote unquote, is, is a very powerful and important responsibility. And um, because of that, you know, I, I can only see these, this kind of platform expanding. Mm-hmm. 
because of, you know, because of the connectability, you know, the connectivity that we now have. Yeah. And I constantly get like messages from adoptive parents looking for ways to help their uh, adoptees. So if you can just send me a link or whatever, um, sure. that people can, can reach you and apply or Absolutely. whatever the process is. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Do you also, uh, I think I heard you mention uh, talking about helping adoptive parents as well. Was that something that you do? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Well, my first introduction to kind of sharing my story publicly was really more with parents than it was with my fellow adoptees. Um, and I really enjoy talking to adoptive parents. Um, like I said, I've spoken on panels where I've shared my story. I've talked specifically about different aspects of my life. You know, I've spoken to parents specifically about talking about adoption. When do you talk about adoption? How do you talk about adoption with your children as little kids? Um, I've spoken to them about search and reunion. I've talked to them about the importance of mentorship and, and you know, community programming for adoptees and adoptive families. Um, the important, the work is important with adoptees. It's also important with adoptive families mm -hmm. because adoptive families need support. Um, all families yes. need support, right? <laughs> Parenting, is tough. Parenting is a difficult thing. And, and what I like to kind of always remind, especially adoptive parents is, is that, you know, where they may think that certain things might be more singularly different because they are an adoptive family and maybe transracial, mm -hmm. Um, every family struggles. Every family struggles to uh, to grow together in different ways. And those struggles don't always have to be hard. They, they can be beautiful. They can be tough. They can be long. They can be, you know. Yeah. Um, so when I get to speak with parents, we're developing right now in my Manhattan-based program, a program to go alongside the kids program. Because we always engage the parents, um, but we want to make sure that they have support. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that they are speaking, that they have the chance to speak to us as mentors, to, to hear from other adoptees, to hear different stories, to talk about race and racism. How do we, how we bring these conversations home? Mm -hmm. You know, how, how do we talk about sex and sexuality and how that affects adoptees and, you know, how to talk about that? Mm -hmm. And also, you know, culture. What is culture? Yeah. So being able to um, bring some of those conversations to adoptive parents, I think, helps to strengthen the bonds that they then bring home to their families. They can be advocates, essentially, for their children, for their stance on adoption, because it's not only us as adoptees that have to be the advocates. We need our friends. We need our families to advocate for us also. Mm -hmm. And the better we can help each other, the better, you know, the more we can share each other's stories and we can help, you know, give each other the resources that will better help everybody understand how to move into the world, supporting our community, the better. Yeah, exactly. And adoptive parents love to hear from adoptees, especially adoptees that are not so far much older than their kids are. Mm -hmm. Because essentially, we are just in, in some way an older representation from their own children. And sometimes they need to hear it's going to be okay. Sometimes they need to hear 
you know, your, your kids don't hate you. They're not, all kids hate their parents when they're teenagers, (laughs) you know, like, you know, not all kids want to search. Not all kids are interested in finding biological information out. Not everyone is going to run to the computer and try to find their families on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, These kinds of things I think help to ease parents fears because they, they start to feel all of these emotions almost all at once with the unknown of what my adopted child may be interested in and how can I support them? How much bandwidth do I have for that? And what are my resources that I can, that I can offer them Mm -hmm. to make them fully supported? What's the most common question that you get from adoptive parents? (sighs) That's a good question. I think the most, the, the most prevalent question that I get is, about search and reunion. Mm. Do all adoptees want to search? What happens if it's not possible for my kid? And then that kind of spirals into, should I search for them? Mm. And that also turns into, at what age do you think we should start looking? You know, it's it's always about search and reunion because I think that there is this just pure and understandable fear that they could have a child who you know, knows that they have a family out there somewhere, knows, Mm -hmm. understands that there are people who they are biologically connected to. And for most kids, if not all kids who are adopted, I think usually our first relationship with adoption and our questions starts in the mirror. Yeah. Who do I look like? I don't have anyone that I look like. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I look like my, my, my birth mother. I wonder if I have siblings. So I think for parents, there's this real fear that once their child decides to search, if they find this biological connection and there's just this true, like innate connection, are they going to want to leave? Like, is that their new family? Yeah. You know, how, how do we make sure that they know that we love them? And I said, mm-hmm. be amazing parents, support them. <laughs> You know, love your kid just like you would love your child if they were biologically connected to you and support them and understand that it's an understandable fear to wonder if your child has, um, you know, dreams of being with their with their biological family. But also understand that a lot of kids don't. They have the same kinds of questions that biological children may have for their parents. You know, oh, you know, I wonder who I look like. Oh, you you know, but we can't answer our questions. Yeah. And that starts to, that starts a, 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 you know, an an internal reflection a lot earlier than maybe some other kids who are not adopted. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that adoptive parents need to take a look at before they even consider adopting. Because when... I talked to my mom about why she did international adoption versus domestic adoption. One of the first things she told me was that she would always be afraid that birth parents would come and try to take me back if she did a domestic adoption. So that's why she did an international one. And I know that a lot of people don't like to to say that, but I've heard quite a few adoptive parents admit to similar lines of thinking. And I understand, like, I would be afraid too, I think, if I was an adoptive parent. But as an adoptee and knowing how I feel about my adoptive parents and my love for them, I 
would never just up and pack my bags and go, you know? I like to look at it like you have a mother and father or whatever type of parent structure and then the parents get divorced and remarried and then you have step parents coming in. It's just a child can love many people and a child can have more than one family and more than one parent that doesn't detract from their love for you. So that's that's kind of the way I look at it. Right. But that's that's your voice as an adoptee kind of like lending that calm and that under that that perspective to adoptive parents because you know, you almost you know, you can you can kind of almost hear the fear and I'm going I'm just using your story as an example. You can almost hear the fear in your mother's voice and saying you know, I didn't want somebody to come and get you. So they can, so if that's the fear and, and, and as kind of unthinkable as that actually is, as a person who is adopted and, you know, us, especially international adoptees, that's, that's not a possibility yeah. really. Um, but you can see how these other thoughts and these other fears can really mm -hmm. accumulate and turn into real, real fears that, that could eventually prevent conversations, could, uh, could, could prevent openness in a family because what happens if we yeah. bring this up? What happens if we put that idea in their head that, that you know, there's somebody else mm -hmm. out there that we share information? There's no right or wrong way to do it. The only thing is, you know, just love your kids and just raise them to be good people and set a good example for them and to be supportive and to understand that Adoptees, just like non-adoptees, have very unique experiences yes. and very unique stories and different perspectives and different wants and needs as mm -hmm. they grow up. Yeah, uh, every story is different. And have you ever heard an adoptive parent refer to their adoptee as ungrateful? Because I I get um one of the top searches on my blog is ungrateful adopted child that gets me the most Absolutely. hits <laughs> how do you, how do you handle sure. that there have been there have been times that i have been kind of handed over children that were thought to be ungrateful you know to, to talk to them and to kind of get perspective and they're not ungrateful there's a lot of kids out there that just do not know how to um, verbalize their feelings. They don't know how to bring some of these conversations home. And what I like to tell parents is you are our first line of defense. You know, if we feel safe with you, then we can go out there and feel confident in ourselves and the world in the ground that we stand on because we know that mom and mm -hmm. dad support us. And just as much as you support us and you stand in front of us and you kind of shield us from the world, adoptees shield you from the world. They shield you from their world because where I'm telling you that I had a very pleasant upbringing. I definitely did have moments when I was growing up that I did feel mm -hmm. different. And I did not, I could not bring that to my parents to share that with them. I look different than you. Oh, you look Sicilian. You look like me. My dad used to yeah. say all the time. And it was endearing and it was cute to me at the time. And it still is because he's not here. <laughs> and I can think back on that with a smile. Um, but because kids don't always know how to say what they're feeling as it comes to their adoption and how they may be feeling internally, if it may be that they have more questions about where they come from, having dreams about 
their biological family, what it may mean to meet their families or um, to reunite with their birth mother. That mixed in with adolescence can, can easily turn into something where the parents may feel like they're not connecting with their kids or they feel mm -hmm. ungrateful. And it's not that, it's just that they are growing and they are trying to figure out a way for them to answer questions that they may never have answers for internally without bringing the conversation home and essentially almost, you know, potentially hurting their yeah. parents. These questions can hurt parents. I remember being maybe 13 years old on my birthday. My birthday is May 9th and that is always right around Mother's Day. And I remember we had gone to get ice cream and I was crying in the car because I had so many emotions because it was the first time that I had really thought to myself, I wonder if there's a Mother's Day in Colombia. I wonder if it's this weekend. And I wonder if it fell on my birthday when my mother wow. had me. And I remember sitting in the back of the car so vividly and I just started crying because it was like you were so overwhelmed and you didn't have anywhere to say all of this because I was in the car with mm -hmm. my parents. And I remember just like through my tears, I said, do you think my mother, my birth mother thinks about me or she remembers when my birthday is? And my parents immediately said, of course, I'm sure they, I'm sure she did. But everything else that I had been trying to work through in myself, I couldn't mm -hmm. bring to say because it was such an overwhelming feeling an overwhelming feeling yeah. of loss and, and, and the unknown that that right there is, is what I say to parents is, is uh, there's so much I could have said. I said nothing because I knew that if I had said anything more and said, I'm thinking about her, or I wonder if she looks like me, or if I wonder if it was mother's day when she had to give me up for adoption can really hurt yeah. my parents. And I wanted to protect them. So adoptees really do protect their parents. And a lot of times that can be misconstrued as ungratefulness or a reluctancy to be open or that why, why doesn't my kid want to talk to me about adoption? I'm so open-minded. I'm so ready to have these conversations because they're building mm -hmm. their narrative. Yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. And one of the things that I hear a lot also is that adoptive parents or just people who know adoptees will say, oh, well, I know an adoptee and they're perfectly fine with their adoption. They have never had any issues or anything. They're happy. They're well adjusted. Like, why are you like that uh, to strangers on the Internet? You know, and uh, like yeah. you said, adoptees aren't going to share every nuanced emotion that they have with everybody in their lives mm -hmm. and like I don't right. like hurting my mom when I talk about it or my dad but it I think one of the best things an adoptive parent can do is seek counseling for themselves and realize that mm -hmm. an adoptee expressing their feelings or questions or anything about adoption isn't a personal attack on them and it, that they can feel upset that they have every right to be upset when an adoptee talks openly and it, it can hurt you because you know we're all human <laughs> but it's yeah. not the adoptee's responsibility to be the adult in that situation.
And if you're an ado- if you're right. adopting a child, it's your responsibility to support them even when some of those feelings are hard for you to hear. Mm-hmm. That's that's the wonderful thing about the adoption community I think these days and and my my view of the evolution of it as far as education goes for parents long before they're actually even adopting. There are more there are more conversations about um, culture, mm-hmm. bringing culture into your house, creating a community for yourself, seeking counseling. You know, parenting is a journey for anybody, adoptive, non-adoptive. To have support is important, um, and to understand to, and to to have it's it. There are a lot of adoptee ex- adoption experts out there. They'll call themselves adoption yeah. experts, and they're not because if you're not adoptive then you're not an adoption expert. And, you know, I always encourage parents to understand that every adoptee has a different story, but listen to all of the stories you can Mm -hmm. hear and understand from before you even have your child that just like any non-adopted person, you're going to have your own unique experience. Mm -hmm. And just because somebody may seem well-adjusted and may seem like they're okay, quote-unquote, with their adoption story, that could very well just be what they're, they want you yeah. to see. You know, just like anything else in life, we have ways of handling ourselves and presenting ourselves so that people see what we want them to mm-hmm. see. And, you know, being uh, an adoptee who shares their story very often and have have had people who've seen my evolution of my story, I think can understand that we change as people and you have to be aware and be ready for those that, that acceptance, but be active in this community, be a part of this community, be an advocate for this community, because the more you, the more you show that you're an ally and that you're, you're here for not just your child, um, the better educated you are. And you can see that, People have different experiences and you can better ready yourself for anything that may come. Exactly. And I think that means for adoptive parents, especially to elevate voices, even if you don't necessarily agree with them with, with especially from adult adoptees. And that's my favorite part of your program is that you integrate such an important part of the adoption community, because like Mm -hmm. you said, we have lived through it and birth mothers and adoptive parents, they can empathize as much as they want and they can be the most open-minded person. But at the end of the day, they're not in our shoes. They don't know what it feels like. So I, I really love that you do that. Do you have any advice for prospective adoptive parents that are listening right now? I think the most important thing anybody can do is create a community for themselves. Involve yourselves in conversations about adoption, hear from adoptees, be open-minded, and listen to as many stories as you can. Um, and understand also that just because we, there may be adoptees who are out there who are willing to share their stories, we're not obligated to share them just because we're adoptees. Mm-hmm. I think there is, there's a lot of us out there that feel like our stories can be helpful and that even telling our stories is, is you know, 
therapeutic for us. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, obviously seek out as many different stories from adoptees, from adoptive families as you possibly can and start working on yourselves, you know, start working on the idea of bringing somebody in who can become a complex human being. Yeah. And what does that look like for you? Are you ready to take on every different question and challenge that may come, not just with them being an adoptee, but just as, as a child growing? And, you know, understand that culture is also an important part of a household, especially when you have a transracial home. Mm -hmm. you know, the acknowledgement of culture and otherness and talking about difficult topics and understanding that uncomfortability ex exists in the, in the home. And if you can't have uncomfortable conversations at home, you're not going to have an easy time having them outside of mm -hmm. your home. So, you know, embrace the, the discomfort that comes with um, building a family mm -hmm. and understanding, you know, different opinions from different people who may live with you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know you mentioned culture a bunch of times. Um, I, I remember that you said that growing up, you grew up in a, a prominently white town. Your parents were white. Do you wish that that's something um, that you could have changed about your childhood, uh, having more of the culture integrated as you grew up? No. I really didn't. Um, I don't think I was interested. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't live, you know, in the times that we are now and, you know, having the internet, yeah. <laughs> having the internet and having there be reflections of yourself kind of shown back to you at a very young age, I would have definitely said, I would have noticed differences at a younger age. I would have been more interested in understanding the language, the culture, um, the food, everything that comes along with being Colombian. Mm -hmm. But I really wasn't interested. I was interested in, in making friends and having fun and, and, you know, and being kid. That was what was the most important part of my existence in this town. And now, as an adult, and even in my college years when I came into that organization and started learning about my culture, and immersed myself in Latin, Latin American studies and really found a lot of enjoyment in being able to bring home what I had learned mm -hmm. to my parents and infusing my household with culture at that point, being able to bring home food, bringing, bring home all new friends, yeah. bringing home music and, you know, have, dancing in the backyard, like having an adult experience of embracing the culture and then having your adult, you know, your parents as people who now view you as not, a, not necessarily a child anymore mm -hmm. and having that be a level playing field. It was such an, in, an incredible experience for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful that my parents were so welcoming to this awakening that I had and they got to eat some really good food. <laughs> and, my friends that I met back then are the friends that I have today and they have integrated with the friends that I grew up with. And, you know, we've got this huge kind of like melting pot happening in the middle of Levittown, which 
it's not, that's not a common thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know you said you wouldn't change anything because growing up back then things were different. Mm-hmm. Um, now that all the teens are on TikTok and Instagram and you can see right. pictures of other people's mm-hmm. families and food that they're eating and stuff. Um, do you think it's yeah. more important now for adoptive yep. parents to integrate culture? Absolutely. Because they don't have any excuse to not have the resources to do it. You know, my parents might have gone down to Columbia and to get me and get some artifacts, get some, get some, some memories, some, some tangible memories for me to have, uh-huh. you know, different pieces of gold. I have some emeralds. I have cold play. I mean, but that was as much as they could do. And then growing up, you know, we weren't, we were not traveling down to Columbia in the eighties. You know what I mean? Like they weren't going to bring me down there. Mm-hmm. Not because we had a conversation and they said, it's not happening. It's just because it wasn't on the, uh, the, the list of places that we wanted to go as a family. Um, and I understand as an adult now the importance of integrating culture into a family because I can say to you that I don't think that I missed out on that. But I can tell you that in my later years as a teenager, seeing that there were definite, there were definite cultural differences between me and my parents, I did not know how to acknowledge them. I didn't know. I knew how to be prideful. I was always prideful of being from Colombia. My parents always made me prideful of that. But I didn't have any more than just that. That, that was all I had was pride. Um, now, you know, talking to parents about integrating culture into the conversation from the very start. Buy some books. Have somebody that's going to speak Spanish around your child. Learn Spanish yourself. Yeah. So it's not like I have to find a Spanish-speaking person to integrate into my life learn these things because the more you're opening yourself up culturally to your child, the better connected you're going to have to them when they have that cultural awakening and they feel super alone because mm-hmm. I felt very alone. I couldn't bring that conversation home to my parents after that first, literally it was my first week of college. Mm. My first week of college was also like, was nine eleven. Wow. And so you're dealing with the weight of the world and and how affected you are from what has happened. Yeah. And then I had also right before that happened had this experience in in college with meeting this group of people and everyone was looking around for answers and for finding where they were and what things meant and it was too heavy of a conversation to bring home. So what I had to do was just kind of forge ahead into those conversations of defending myself. And it was probably in those moments that I wished that I had some more support, cultural support at home that my parents had kind of ready for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, absolutely, I tell parents all the time, buy some books, you know, make sure you're bringing your kids to areas where they see themselves reflected back and talk about the differences. Talk about race, talk about racism, talk about cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And make them conversations that are appropriate for the age of the child and that way you can you can grow with them. You grow into these uncomfortable conversations in a comfortable way because you're steering the ship. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on tonight and talking with us. I really enjoyed having you on and learning a bunch of new things. <laughs> I hope you had a good time as well. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Melissa. I really do appreciate the opportunity and uh, it's really amazing what you're doing. I'm so glad that you joined me today. And if you would like to hear more from Adoptee Thoughts, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website, adopteethoughts.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.